Our main speaker tonight is Jim from San Clemente. Um, I don't know Jim, but I'm going to go with him as a good speaker. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great introduction. <laughs> Works every time. Hi, my name is Jim and I am an alcoholic. Yeah, yeah. I want to take this opportunity to thank Kent for inviting me here tonight. Um, I really appreciate it to have the opportunity to speak before you. I'll share with you uh, a little of a, kind of an unusual history that I have with regards to my alcoholism. Um, I'll start from kind of my early, my early years. I'm a local guy born in uh, Montebello, California. I'm one of five children. I'm the second oldest. Uh, none of my siblings are alcoholics, nor my parents are all, none of them are alcoholics, everybody's a normie. Uh, my father was a career officer in the military, he was a fighter pilot in the Marine Corps. So my formative years I spent traveling about every two years, I moved from one state to another. I lived in about six different states, attended six different primary schools, um, never had a whole, never had a consistent friendships, you know, during those, those formative years. Um, my father was always being transferred there, about, like I say, every two or two and a half years. And uh, I went to high school in Mexico City. My dad was, uh, as I said, was in the military and was uh, given an assignment at the Mexican embassy, in Mexico City at the American Embassy. So I spent four years in Mexico going to high school, which is, a, that was in 1963 through 1960, 68, 60, late, late latter part of 67. And, um, which is a great experience, I'll never forget it. It was part of, best high school you could, time you could ever have. In those years, Mexico was just wide open. You could go do anything. There was no problem with, you could go anywhere you wanted at any time in the day or night. It was really wonderful. I, we came back to the United States and um, uh, after I finished high school, I went to, went to university. And at that time, the draft in the Vietnam War was, was, was very, very active. And my draft number was like number three. But you get those, in those days, you could get a draft affirmative uh, if you were going to school. So if you're going to school full time, you, you weren't susceptible to be drafted. Well, in my infinite wisdom, I thought that partying was a little bit more important than, than going to school. So I got a letter from the President of the United States to go, come on down, Jim. I ended up <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up going to the induction center on Fifth Street in Los Angeles. And with, uh, they gave us a sack lunch for the bologna and chips and got on a bus and went to Fort Ord up in Monterey, California to go through basic training. Uh, so I went through basic training and that was an eye-opener, I'll tell you that. Uh, after that I went to jump school in, in uh, Fort Benning, Georgia where they taught me how to jump out of an airplane, which is not really a good idea, but <laughs> I did it anyway. Young, you kind of do whatever you, you're, you're told. So I learned how to jump and then in 1969 I was sent to Vietnam. And I was with a, an infantry unit, well, I was actually with the 82nd Airborne Division over there. And um, in the infantry as a grunt, I was a, I was a sniper. I uh, had a variety of jobs, but all wartime related. Uh, I was wounded twice there, stepped on a booby trap once, was shot once. Um, I, I went to Guam for a while for recuperation and uh, they thought that I was fit enough and well enough, so they sent me back to Vietnam where I continued to do it, finish my tour, so I ended up doing about 14 months in Vietnam. So I had a couple Purple Hearts, so I got two Bronze Stars there. there. Um, just doing the things that a young man was supposed to do if you're taught you know, in the military and without any, without kind of blind, uh, kind of following the leader, following the blind. Came back from Vietnam and uh, 
had no skills. I didn't know what to do. I'd only had about six or seven months in the college. And I was working part-time at a, uh, at a uh, oh, let me backtrack a little bit. Uh, I like to share a little bit about, the, about Vietnam and there's these preconceived notions about Vietnam and what we were doing in Vietnam. I, the, the issue or the idea that we were a bunch of baby killers and that we were all drug addicts is really, really false. I, um, and, and I feel uh, compelled to tell you that because it's such a, a stain on a lot of us who came back from Vietnam. Um, alcohol was, prep, was available. I was out in the field for those 14 months of the time I spent in the hospital. Narcotics were basically, basically at the rear bases, the fire bases. Uh, I never saw any narcotics, and I may, may be naive, but when we were out in the field, narcotics was the last thing you'd want to be involved with because it ended up costing you your life or anybody else, your buddy's life. So those issues, that you, those ideas you have about us being a bunch of drug addicts in Vietnam is absolutely false. And uh, I try to share that with anybody that I can at any time I can because it's, like I say, it's a stigma that, that I carry to this day. So um, when I came back from Vietnam, I didn't have any skills. Uh, I was married. I'd been married just two weeks before I went to Vietnam, and that was not by design. I, uh, we'd had an engagement date and a marriage date and ended up getting drafted, but got married anyway in two weeks, went to Vietnam. Next time I saw my wife was on R&R &R in Hawaii, which was six months later. And then when I returned from Vietnam, I ended up working at the Los Angeles Times with a, uh, in, the, in the press room. It was a part-time job just to make some money to put together to pay for rent. I ended up running into two guys who were cops for LAPD and they were working there part-time moonlighting making some extra money. And I remember one of the guys came up to me and said, you just back from the service? Yeah, and we kind of had to exchange some pleasantries and he says, uh, you know, thought about being a cop? And I said, no, why would I want to do that? <laughs> I mean, that, <laughs> that's why I never even thought about it. Furthest thing from my mind, I thought I'd go back to school and get kind of a white collar job. And he says, well, we'll take you across the street and you go to uh, personnel division and we'll see, take a look at what you, at the, the information of the brochures and see if you'd be interested in joining. So I remember I went home and I talked to my wife and, uh, and she said, well, you got nothing better to do. Why don't you go ahead and join? So I joined. $842 a month. This is 1970. Uh, benefits, everything. I thought it was great. So I ended up joining the police department and uh, went to the academy in, in October of 1970. And I worked LAPD for 38 years. And most of my time was spent in a black and white in a radio car. And I'll give you a little bit of a history with regards to um, the fellowship in law enforcement. And I think it also applies to the fire department that alcohol is kind of a common denominator when you're on the department. The job is very, very stressful. It's time consuming. You spend a lot of time away from your family, going to court, chasing guys like Ken around. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, um, a lot of all of our spare time, a lot of our spare time was was spent in kind of a community of of young policemen, and we'd uh, our, like I say, our common denominator was alcohol. We'd have what we call steak fries, which are uh, barbecues we'd have after hours after work, and we would first question was who's going to bring the beer, and so well, policemen are pretty hard uh, pretty hard players when it comes off duty time, and uh, so alcohol was been a was a was a wasn't a predominant factor in my life, my early years in the law enforcement, but it was there. I drank on occasion. I had alcohol in my house. My wife's an army. To this day, is an army. Um, I, like I say, there was alcohol was always available. I could have it whenever I wanted. I had it at the house when I wanted to drink it. I had a beer. I was a beer drinker when I drank, but it wasn't it wasn't a problem. 
as time went on, when on, the, on, the, on the, when I was on the police department, uh, I promoted and became a detective, and I worked homicide for 20 years. And that was time when you know, I was working homicide. I, in retrospect, I could see where my, oh, my, uh, my use of alcohol became a little bit exaggerated, a little bit more and more. I was spending a lot of time away from my home. Uh, if you've, you've all seen 48 Hours, that's pretty much how things work when you're a homicide cop. You get a call and you end up going as far as you can go until you can't go anymore. And then those free hours where you could go back either get a little rest, a little recreation, it normally involve alcohol. You go to a local bar, have a drink or something, go home, kind of unwind for a couple of days and go back and go right back at it, do it again, and continue until you couldn't go any further. And that's kind of the way you work on a homicide. And I, I investigated over 200 homicides in the 20 years that I worked there. And I can tell you that it took its toll on me, as it, not only physically, emotionally, mentally, but also my, my uh, preoccupation with alcohol. Uh, those times that I would uh, come home from four or five days trying to chase somebody down or trying to figure out what, what happened during a homicide, I'd, first thing I did was come home and greet my wife and go to the alcohol. And that was my way of, of relieving the stress that I had. Um, uh, backtrack, look, I raised three children. Uh, they're all grown. Uh, my oldest daughter is a, is a raging alcoholic and has been for 15 years. Uh, as of two weeks ago, I, she, this is probably her 15th relapse, uh, her fourth stay, fifth stay in a hospital. She's currently in sober living, so that genetic component, I think, was passed on to my oldest daughter. My other two uh, children are, are normies, social drinkers. Um, my daughter is a is a, is a tragedy. I don't think that she ever has the, she'll ever have the ability to get, be, be sober. That's her, I think that's just her life now. And it's unfortunate, uh, as we all know, where alcohol can take us, and it's taken her there. And I think it's taken, it's become, it's just become her life, her lifestyle. I don't think she'll ever recover. So um, I had, uh, alcohol, as I say, was always a part of my life. Uh, I retired in 2012, and at that time, I think the last five years before I retired, I could see where my alcohol use became greater and greater. It kind of was gradual. But I always had an excuse for it. I always told myself that this is okay, that it, I'm a normal guy. Look at all these other people, they can drink. But I could see where my, my dependence on alcohol become, became greater and greater. And when I finally retired in 2012, my wife was an executive for Albertsons and was continuing to work. and. Um, I have this big house in San Clemente. The kids are all gone. I've got four granddaughters. I saw them whenever they, on the weekends. They were a great, uh, great part of my life. But the alcohol use uh, really took off, took a life of its own. Um, I was sitting at home alone, big house, big flat screen TV, my two dogs and my remote. And I thought, you know, this is not a bad way to retire. You know, I'm getting, got these pension checks coming in. I'll never have to worry about anything the rest of my life. I've got a beautiful place where I live. I've got all the toys that a, a you know, guy would want. And uh, I was lonely. My wife would come home. I'd make her dinner. I even went to cooking classes so I could learn how to cook. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so my main, that was my, my hobby was to cook. And while I was cooking, I always, had a, I always had a drink. I always had a glass of wine. I was a wino. So I took these cooking classes and I thought, this is going to be great. I can drink and I could cook at the same time. My wife will just love me. <laughs> and that's what I did. And my wife um, 
she's a normie, she would drink on occasion, she would drink at dinner and I would always invite her to join me with a drink at dinner and then afterwards I would we'd have a drink, I was wine all the time. And then uh, when she would go to bed I would continue. And it got to the point where I was uh, drinking around the clock. My wife would get up at five o'clock to go to work and I, uh, I couldn't wait for her to get out of the house. I thought uh, Please let, her, let her, please let her get out of this house by 5.30 or 6 o'clock because I'm starting to feel, feel sick. So she would get out of the house and I would stand there and I think, thank God she's gone. And I would make a hotline for the, for, the, for the refrigerator and I thought, well, I'll just have a little bit. I'll just have a little bit, just kind of take, take the edge off a little bit. And within a month I was drinking around the clock. Uh, my personal hygiene went, in the, went down the in the tank. I was sitting around out bathing for a couple of days and all. My, own, my, my main objective was to drink and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't drink enough. Uh, my wife obviously noticed it um, and God bless her, she never said anything. And I thought I was the smart one that she would never find out the amount I was drinking. I was hiding, we know we've all hidden alcohol. I've got it in my, my 90 year old neighbor's uh, trash can. I put it in her trash can. <laughs> Who's gonna check that? You got a 90-year-old drunk next door to you? Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's gonna believe that, or if they do, they wonder how she got out of the house to go get the booze. <laughs> so I was, I was pretty creative. Um, so that went on for quite a while, and I got to the point where uh, I ended up going to the hospital in the back of an ambulance. Paramedics had to pick me up. My wife had to call 911. I'd fallen down the stairs and able to care for myself and I spent three days in the hospital. Uh, that didn't stop me. I came out and my wife and my children pleaded for me to get some, seek some sort of help. So I, I said, sure, I'll do that. So uh, we would like to go to, uh, to sober living. I said, well, let's don't jump off the boat right now. <laughs> That's pretty extreme, don't you think? How about if we kind of ease into this, you know, maybe I'll start to go to, a, maybe how about if I go to an AA meeting? Yeah, that sounds good, Dad. My wife said, yeah, great, Jim. Could start with AA. So that went on for a while, for about five or six months, and I was right back to where I was. Uh, my, my alcoholism just went through the, through the roof. And I never thought that it would, uh, it had such an impact on my, on my children and my, my grandchildren. I thought that nobody really knew the extent, the amount of it that I was drinking. So, um, I ended up in going to the hospital again my second time, like I say about six months after my first experience, I ended up uh, completely undressed in my garage on the floor and had no idea how I got there. Again my wife called 911, apparently it was in the middle of the night because she got up and I, I recall faintly that she shook me and I was laying there I thought, God it's awful cold in here, <laughs> I'm laying on the concrete floor in my garage. So she calls 911 again. And I ended up spending uh, about a week in the hospital, the detoxing. I'd had, uh, I didn't have the DTs, but I was pretty close to it. So um, again, I, after I got out of the hospital, I thought my wife and my family again implored me to go seek help. I said, okay, finally I'll do it. So I went to Mission Hospital, South County, for 30 days with uh, Dr. Hedrick and that grew there, which are a great bunch of people. I spent 30 days in residence there, came out, didn't get a sponsor. I got this all figured out. I got a big book, I got the 12 and 12. I think I can get these things, I can put them together, I can think I can work this program. 
So I did that, and I did that for probably about a month, two months, religiously going to meetings. Anybody need a sponsor? I don't need a sponsor, I'm good. Um, would read the book on occasion, highlight it, you know, just to make, just to cover myself. Look at honey, I've got this, I've got a yellow highlighter, I'm highlighting all these, all the, all the important stuff in this book. Look at how well I'm doing, I'm really working this program. And so I think, thank God she never asked me any questions about it because I had no idea what, was, what the big book was about. Other than the 12, other than the 12 steps, I knew those pretty well, but the rest of it I had no idea what it was, what it was about. So I ended up going through 30 days there at South County, in South, at the, the hospital there, and uh, went to some AA meetings just to keep everybody off my back. Never, like I said, never got a sponsor, never did any, no commitments. I would, the guy that would sit in the back, leave at halftime, make sure that I never raised my hand, I never shared with anybody, I never identified anybody, I never put my hand out to, to, to introduce myself to anybody, I was a, I was a mystery man. I went there, I was uncomfortable, I didn't want to hear what you guys had to say, I wanted no part of it. I thought this is a completely goofy bunch of people who can't handle their alcohol and they're not like me because I can handle it. And I'm just here as a spectator. And uh, I thought, and as time as it went on, I found out how, how, silly, how silly that was of me. Uh, but that's the guy I was. I wanted nothing to do with AA. I thought this is going to really screw up the rest of my life. My retirement is meant for me to enjoy myself, and I'm not going to be able to do it if I'm an AA. They're going to take everything away from me. I can't go play golf and drink. I can't go and party. I can't do any of that anymore. It's all gone. So um, I had this false impression that uh, that AA was was a group of people who got together on a regular basis and complained about their lives. You know, that oh, poor me. I'm a drunk. I'm an alcoholic. I've lost my job. I've lost my family. And I never thought there was a positive side to Alcoholics Anonymous. I always thought that there was, there was some sort of a catch to it, you know, that you had to go in, I don't know whether it was a secret handshake, I wasn't quite sure what was going on. But I thought that I didn't want any part of it. And then I finally, as more often the times that I went to a meeting, uh, and I saw the people who seemed to have a sense of, uh, not only a spiritual connection, but a sense of, of peace and of well-being, I thought maybe, maybe there is something that's Alcoholics Anonymous. But it took a lot for, of convincing me for me to buy into it. Um, I've had four years of sobriety. Unfortunately, those years are not consecutive. Um, I've struggled over and over again. I've, uh, I've had, I'm kind of a poster child for relapse. I, 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 I think I probably had seven or eight relapses. I've had, uh, like I say, four, four sobriety dates. The last, this, last, this last attempt at sobriety is I've got two years. And I, um, I found a peace of mind that I never thought I would have before. Uh, alcohol was, had, had consumed me to the point where it, ha it has, and not only did, but it has affected my family life. Uh, I've been married 50 years. I have four, four grandchildren, uh, two of which I'm unable to see. They're little ones, they're five and four. My son is a normie and won't let me see my granddaughters. I've seen them once since they've been born. I have two older granddaughters, one who's a, sophomore in college, one who's a senior in high school, and they've seen me at my very worst, down and drunk, unable to care for myself. I went to my son's engagement party in a complete blackout. Uh, I don't remember anything except signing the, signing the bill. I don't remember a thing. I don't remember a presentation I made. I completely embarrassed my entire family, my son. To this day, my daughter-in-law won't speak to me. So those are consequences that, of, uh, of, of alcoholism. Um, I've had to make my amends to my, 
to my granddaughters, and and uh, it wasn't easy. And they were very they were confused about what alcoholism was, and but they'd seen their grandfather on his hands and knees at a Christmas party, unable to care for himself, and they always wondered why. And I had to explain to them that I had a disease, that I was an alcoholic. And when I got when alcoholic, alcohol and I got together, that all all bets were off the table. I would do anything if I could continue to drink, and that's what I did. So my, my relationship with my son is not is kind of tentative. My, my daughter-in-law doesn't exist. Um, I doubt whether I'll ever be able to see my granddaughters. Um, I see them, uh, he sent me photos of them, but uh, my last interaction with him was he absolutely denied us the, the opportunity to, to see my grandchildren. And it's, it's compromised my wife too because she's also part of the part of the equation, she's, she's, has, she's been denied that access as well. So it has taken its toll on my family life. I have my, my middle daughter is, a, is very skeptical of me. Uh, that relationship that existed as a father and, and daughter, that closeness that we used to have, the embraces that I used to share that don't exist anymore. And I've made my amends to her, but uh, the damage I think is, uh, is irrevocable. And that's okay because uh, she can continue her life, and I know I can continue my life, and we know we have our boundaries, so we know where, how far I can go, and I don't push those limits anymore. I used to. I wanted people to understand that I'm a sick man, and I'm entitled to be, have, have you and all those grandchildren in my life. That's my prerogative. I have that right. I'm your father. I'm the grandfather. And take away the alcoholism, I'm still, I have, I have been, I'm entitled to this. I was in a man of, man of entitlement that I'm, these are, things that I, I have the right to be. I have the right to be their grandfather and I have the right to see them. And that was all taken away from me and it took me quite a while to understand the fact that they don't want me around them and when I'm drinking and they have those memories that they can't erase of their dad and their grandfather and his hands and knees under at a Christmas party. And that's not the only time that I've done that. And um, so it's, it's damaged my, my family life to the extent that uh, it's compromised my, say my relationship. My oldest daughter, um, is, a, is a tragedy. I don't, as I mentioned before, uh, I think genetically she was predisposed to this and she has seen, I've seen her in the worst, you know, homeless. Um, everything that we imagine, everything that we perceive as an alcoholic, she's been there and done that. She's a very bright gal, a nurse, master's degree, doesn't make any difference, she's a, still an alcoholic. I don't think she'll ever recover from this. And as, as a result, her brother and sister are estranged from her. They won't have anything to do with her. So the alcohol has touched my family in a variety of ways. And it's uh, created kind of a volcano that uh, has erupted on several occasions as a result of my activities. Uh, I was a, I was a uh, blackout drinker. I would, as I'm an ex-cop, uh, drinking and driving was my, was my uh, my passion. I thought I could, I could, I thought I was, you know, Dan Gurney and I could drink and drive with the best of them. And I did. Um, by the grace of a higher power, whoever that, or he, he or she may be, I was never stopped. I drove with my granddaughters in the car drunk. Um, I've driven with my wife on occasions where I've had to argue with her because I thought I could drink and I could drive, that I was capable of driving. And I look back on those times and I, and I, I cringe because I should have, I've compromised the, not only my well-being, but everybody who was around me on the freeway. I had no, I, I, I had no right to do that. And uh, the alcohol took that, gave me the, not all the opportunity, but gave me the presence of mind where I thought that I was capable of drinking and driving. And uh, 
I, I get, it makes me sick when I think about it now. I've, uh, as I said, I've been through a relapse on several occasions. I've been through, I'm on my fourth, went through four treatment centers, 30-day residential treatment centers. I went through Hogue twice, Somar residential facility there. Um, got four months of sobriety. And I'm a poster child for relapses because I ended up, as historically, I'm a guy that goes out and thinks that he's smarter than everybody else and I'm smart enough to understand the program and how it works and so I manipulate that program to my benefit. And those manipulations take form of not attending meetings, firing one sponsor after another because this guy, he wants me to go pick up stuff, he wants me to set up chairs, he wants me to do all this commitment stuff. I'm the, don't you know who I am? I'm not that guy. I'm, I'm just not that guy. And why would you want me to go do that anyway? And I ever understood that it was part of the, part of the, it's part of AA. It's just that part we have to give as, instead of taking all the time. And I was that guy who would take. I would never offer myself for anything. So I, I went through Hogue on two occasions. As I say, fired four sponsors because their programs didn't match what I thought was their, the right program for, for recovery. And my, mo my most recent 30-day uh, program was at, uh, was at Covenant Hills, which is in San Clemente. And I went through that for 30 days. And that was uh, two years ago, two and a half years ago. And that was my, my salvation, I think. I think I finally got to the point where I was just, as we talk about being sick and tired of being sick and tired, I, I don't know whether I, I, I put it that way, I just said, you know, I'm done. You know, I can't take this anymore. You know, I'm, I just recently celebrated my 71st birthday, and, and, I, uh, at, and I thought at the time that I'm never gonna be 71. This was two years ago, I said, I'm never gonna make it. And I got on my hands and knees one day and I thought, you know what, who's ever listening to me, whoever or she or she may be, or whatever's in the future for me, whatever's out there, just you know, give me a shot at this. Just let me try something different. And so I went back to Covenant and uh, surprisingly I did it on my own volition. Nobody asked me, nobody cajoled me, nobody mandated my wife. My marriage wasn't in jeopardy. Um, nothing, I, I just said that, you know, I'll go do it. And I went and did it on my own. And it's probably the best thing I, I've ever done uh, because I've been able to find a peace of mind that I never had before. And all those other programs that I went through were, were just piecemeal. It was just to get everybody off my back. I mean, I, fortunately I had insurance that covered for a lot of it, so the, you know, the financial limit wasn't, wasn't a big issue. But just the fact that I had to go away somewhere and, and subject myself to other people to try to, who were trying to there, were there to help me, and I never took that help into consideration. I always thought it was, I was kind of being a punished because I was an alcoholic, and and the only way I could seek survival was to go through the program. I thought there had to be another way to do it, and I found out that my way wasn't the way to do it. So my last, my last stint in the, in the, in the, in the residential program was was great. I've been sober for like over two and a half years this time. And I don't know what the future, the future holds for me. I know that I, I participate in AA on a regular basis. I go to four or five meetings a week. I sponsor two young men, which I never thought would ever happen. That people would have the confidence in me to trust me with walking them through the steps of alcoholism. And I never felt, I never felt I, I was not only qualified, I, I felt that it was a, I didn't feel entitled to do it. I didn't only feel I was responsible enough to do it because I'd looked at my past history and I was never a guy that could that you could trust when I was in my, deep in my alcoholism. I was a guy that would cajole you, would lie to you, 
would uh, play you off the mark just as long as I could drink. I'd tell you anything if I could. And, you, and I th always thought that you would buy into it. So the sponsorship has probably been a, one of the most important things that have happened to me in my sobriety. And I, uh, like I say, I, I participate on a regular basis. I take a lot of uh, commitments. I, the two sponsees I love do. And they talk about that, that, that uh, feeling of, of uh, satisfaction being a sponsor. And it's absolutely true. I look forward to the days where I hear my guys call me. I, have, I actually had a young woman ask me to be her sponsor, and I, I'm still not quite, quite haven't figured out what to do about that. <laughs> but um, I feel honored to have people approach me and say, hey, Jim, I think you got what I want. And that's really been an important part of my sobriety. Because there was a lot of people that I never thought that I wanted, but they had. I always thought that they had something that I could never have. And that, that feeling of sobriety was something that was so foreign to me. And I always wondered, wondered what, what was the connection between this, this guy or this woman who, had, who, had, who was alcoholic who had a spiritual connection. It always baffled me. I could never figure out how they could rely on the spiritual connection. The big book talks about it in so many ways. And I thought that is that guy or that guy up the gal up there isn't looking out for me, and I'm talking to him all the time, and I just don't get it. There's no answer for me. Uh, I finally just put it all aside and said, "Stop challenging it, you know. Stop, stop asking all the time." And that uh, that peace of mind came to me, uh, and it stayed with me for, for the last two and a half years. And I always thought it was something that uh, was was kind of fleeting, but the last two and a half years I found a peace of mind that I've never been able to have before. And I always used to sit in, in, the, in the audience and listen to people like myself who would come and talk about that, and I used to think, that's not possible for me. You know, I'm, I'm completely different. That's not possible. I don't believe in that higher power stuff. So I finally put that all aside, and I finally, one day I, was, I remember I was sitting in front of the television. I was sitting there by myself with my dogs, and I thought, you know what? Whoever's out there listening, I'm good. If you listen to me, I'll take whatever you got. And that worked for me. Nothing more than, it wasn't any, any more, it was as simple as that. Whoever's listening, just give me what, tell me what to do, give me a little direction and I'll do it. And that's what I did. And I've been, uh, I've been passionate about AA ever since. Uh, I look, and I've always thought that, uh, you know, as I say, I've given, I'm 71 and a half, and I thought, God, I'd like to get a 20-year chip. You know, <laughs> that'd be great. If I can get the 20-year chip, I think I've, I've accomplished something, you know. And I hopefully, I, I, you know, with the, with, with the peace of mind I have and my, the direction I've taken, I think I can do that. And that was something that was so foreign to me for so many years. It was, uh, it was so elusive that I never thought that I could ever, f I was content being an alcoholic. Uh, I drank it around the clock was, was my way of life. And I didn't think there was anything better for me. And given the fact that I, I've found a peace of mind that I never thought I would have before, I'm comfortable in who I am now. And I couldn't say that 10 years ago. So um, I don't know what else I can talk about. I, I'm, I'm good to go. I, I love my life. Uh, I love AA. I always thought you people were a bunch of weirdos. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I never thought. I never knew the secret handshake. There had to be one. I used to get on Google and I thought, what do they do when they go in there to these meetings? And I thought, and I'm serious. I thought there was. You know, I'm from a 
pretty clandestine group of guys being in law enforcement. There's a really pretty tight group of people. And there's always some kind of a special greeting that you, that you have. It's kind of either eye contact or a handshake <laughs> or something like that. You know, I got you. So uh, all those preconceived notions were all gone. I feel like I'm one of you. I never felt that I was for a long, long time. I felt I was a guy on the outside always looking in. And that what you had to offer wasn't for a guy like me. Because you, know, you know where I've been and what I've done. You know, so uh, I'm Jim, I'm an alcoholic, and thanks for letting me share. All right. <laughs>